You are now entering the MXU podcast. No credentials required. Well, hey, everyone. We're closing in on 50. This is episode 48 of the MXU podcast. Episode episode 48K. Uh-huh. <laughs> Nerdy audio joke. That's right. We're talking about Ks this week. We got 48 in audio world. We got four in video world that we're going to talk about later. So um, it's all about the Ks. Yeah. K1, K2, K3. <laughs> D&B needs That's another funny. letter. You know, they need like, well, we'll take S. That's right. I don't know. Well, they've got A, T, V. That's true. They I mean, do. They've, got, they've got a lot of letters already. Why? We need a, a manufacturer to come up with a completely unique nomenclature for their products. That's a good idea. Like, what would we call, if, if MXU had products, what would we call the series of products? Yellow, black. Or if it was like food. Ooh. Or like when we go to dinner and we describe our choice of wine in terms of audio, that's always my favorite yeah, we game do to that. play. Have we ever talked about that I don't publicly? Think we have. We do? I don't think they know how okay, this is awesome. debauched we are. Okay. I, I think... Jake Cody is the originator yep, it of was, this. It was me, you, Jake, and Stone were at dinner one night, and we just started talking about wine. But instead of describing the nose or the finish or the tannins or whatever in terms of like flowery, Flavor. arty wine yeah. flavors, we just started talking about it in audio. Yeah, so it went something like this. You take us, well, let's, let's set the setting here. We're at like, a really fancy steakhouse that none of us have any business being in. Right. First of all, <laughs> yeah. And there's the four of us, scruffy heathens, in a you know white tablecloth steakhouse, which is funny. And then some expensive bottle of wine, and you take a sip, and just picture Jake Cody or myself going, "Yeah, it's really got like a bump at sixty hertz." And then everybody's <laughs> like, "Oh yeah, there there is a bump at 60. And it almost feels like some multi-brain compression around like 400 to 800, like, you know, maybe like six to one or so. Well, yes. Then, then there's this 2K finish that just sort of, just kind of, yeah. it's like really bright at the end. It's funny. <laughs> yeah. It's like a, it's like a vintage lexicon plate at, at 3.2 seconds. <laughs> We're crazy. So that's, we currently still do this. Yeah. So that's what we do instead of going. Oh, it tastes like pears from the south of France. No, it tastes like a drummer gate. That's what we call it. <laughs> That's oh, funny. Gosh. Well, speaking of drummer gates, I spent last week at Tweed Recording in Athens, Georgia, and we were partnering with them on some content for MXU Now. And I got to tell you, if you ever want to go to Audio Disneyland, you got to go to Athens, Georgia and hang out with the boys at Tweed. We had so much fun. And I'm telling you, their gear, yeah, it was crazy. It was. You mean you didn't shoot videos on X32s and SD7s? No, we didn't. Um, we, well, the videos that we shot with a console were actually on Digico's new Quantum 338, which is a whole, oh, that's a whole cool. other conversation. But for the first time, we unpacked um just a pro tools workflow that happens to not be a template that you should buy but it's really just Ooh, shots fired shots <laughs> best, fired best practices around 
busing and routing and you know pro tools um but that was that was kind of fun but then the other thing that we did which we've never done before is we did a side-by-side comparison between this vintage analog outboard gear that we love as plugins we compared them to the originals so okay this place has i mean like nine la2as and so you compared an la2a hardware unit to the plug-in so i'm i don't want to give it all away but let's just say let's let's imagine the the field trip if if you will if we were to go stand in front of a rack of vintage gear with a kick and snare a bass an acoustic instrument and a vocal and run them all through an la2a an 1176 and a distressor and basically just say Here's what I like about each of these things. Oh, cool. Let's vote among three or four people. Which one do we like best on the kick drum? Okay, great. Let's listen to that. And then let's compare that to the plugin in UA and Waves and see how close they got. So we went in and basically set the settings in the plugin exactly the way they were set in the hardware unit and, yeah. and A-beat it and to see how close they were. And it was stunning. I got a shout out. Wow. I got a shout out to plug-in manufacturers. Whoever is doing the math on those emulations is super talented. I mean, it <laughs> it was awesome. it was really impressive. Now, some of them obviously it depends on the actual unit that they were modeling because right. these are part of the deal. It's like the analog circuitry is the same, but the color is a bit unique. But man, we had so much fun and it was refreshing and actually kind of gratifying to see that the plug-in manufacturers are getting really, really close to what they're emulating. That's awesome. Yeah, it was fun. And our friend Chris Raybold came in for a day. He did. And so we got his just kind of workflow and best practices on how he approaches a mix. And then we, we had some great conversations that weren't about actual console stuff where uh, four or five of us were just sitting around talking about how we listen like what is deep listening and how do you listen to music and what do you love about listening to great music which really informs all of what we tell our guys all the time about how important it is to listen to a lot of different stuff that's freaking awesome i'm super jealous i wasn't able to go but i'm glad you guys did it i'm really jealous that you got to hang out with raybold I was like secretly hoping that that would be me in that seat <laughs> so i mean how good is he it was pretty great He's such a fun guy to hang out with. Yeah, too. that's the thing is the the hang, whether it's you and me hanging out or any of our MXU live events or any of this stuff. I mean, you know, guys who've been around us, we it's all about the hang. And so to yeah. to be around great people is always the best part. Um speaking of the best part, it looks like the best part of your day right now is sitting in a dark garage. What's going on? Yeah, well, I'm in my garage sitting down, but there's motion sensor lights in here and my truck is blocking the <laughs> sensor. So like, I'm in the dark, but no, I have a console in here. So we're doing, um, Christmas services are fast approaching. Yeah. This is the week of Thanksgiving. We're a few days uh, before Thanksgiving right now. So uh, a couple of days ago, the guys brought a desk to me so that I can do virtual sound check and pre-production and get stuff ready here. So very cool. 
I was, uh, I, I guess I can say it. It doesn't really matter. I was around someone who tested positive for COVID uh, two weeks ago. So I can't go back to work for a little while. I tested negative. I've had multiple tests, so I'm good. Did you get contact traced? Like, did you get contacted by somebody outside of your organization just randomly calling no, you? No. That would be weird. That would, I would leave the country and go to another country who's <laughs> worse than this because there aren't any, any better, probably. Um, no. Uh, someone tested positive at work. They told HR, and then HR contacts everyone, like, hey, you get to stay away for 14 days. And luckily they pay for the COVID test though. So I go get multiple tests and that's cool. Well, I'm glad it was negative. Yeah. Yeah. Is the person who was infected first, are they doing okay? Yeah, they're fine. I mean, no symptoms. No symptoms. No, that's cool. Yeah. Is one of those like just follow the protocol and do what they say. So because of all that, I have a console here at my house. Well, and so. the great thing about it is that it is fully lit up with strings of Christmas lights. I know. You got to get in the get mood. In the, get in the season. That's right. Yeah. So uh, yesterday I spent most of the day doing a bunch of tests and testing things. Yeah. I saw your post about Robert's thing and the delay compensation. So we got to talk about that because we spent a lot of time last episode yeah. talking to him about the importance of this stuff. So tell me what you did and what you learned. Okay, so I'm really early on here, but basically the PM7 has three options for delay compensation. Okay. okay? You can delay compensate to every input, Mm -hmm. which most consoles don't have that, funny enough. Allen and Heath and Avid are the only ones that do it. Um, Then you can align all of the inputs sent to buses. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... If you send, let's talk about snare drum, snare top to mix bus one, and then mix bus one goes to stereo A, and then stereo A goes to matrix. And then you take snare bottom and send it straight to the matrix. Uh-huh. It lines that up. Okay. That's what that option does. And then the third option is it aligns inserts across buses. So that would be if you want to do parallel compression. Okay. So if send in snare drum to mix bus one, snare drum two, to mix bus two, and that one's getting compressed. That's how you get that lined up. The problem is at 48K, your throughput of the console is 10 and a half milliseconds. Okay. Okay. The console's 96K, but all of our IO at the church and the, the audio network is set to 48K. So we run at 48. If you're at 96, it cuts that in half. You would think it doubles it, but it doesn't. At 96, it's actually faster. Huh. So that's important to know. Now, I'm using waves. So if I send the snare drum, snare top, into waves, process it, send it back to the console, that's also adding more delay. Right. There's a system throughput in waves, right. and you can change that buffer based on the network speed. It can be anywhere from two to 10 milliseconds. That's just with no plugins. Right. Then you add plugins and then you add the sample delay of each plugin. So round trip with the 10 and a half milliseconds on the console, you can get up to 15 milliseconds really easily. Yeah. Okay. So here's what I wanted to know because what Robert said, and it's, it's more than just what Robert said. It's just fact. It's science. It is science. 
With a drum kit and all those close microphones and the bleed into each other, especially with the overheads and the snare drum, the snare drum also being the most latent input on my console because of all the busing it's doing and it's going to waves, right? right? The interaction between the overheads, which are not going to waves, and the snare drum that is, it's changing the phase relationship of those inputs and causing comb filtering or summation at at different points in the frequency spectrum, right? Right. So... If your snare drum soloed up, sounds nice and thick, and it's got this cool bump at 140, and then you turn your overheads on, because the snare drum's going out of the console and then back in, some weird things can happen. So I wanted to test that, and all I've done to test it so far is just the snare drum. So if I listen to the whole mix, the whole band's playing, and I've got the snare sent into waves, and then back in, if I turn on and off that input compensation, I can 100% hear the difference on just the snare drum. Okay. So now I'm going to test the rest of the band. What happens when there's EQ on a guitar and the tracks and keys and you got all this other stuff. I think it's going to be more of the same. It's going to be, yes, there's a difference. It's almost like, especially the real rhythmic parts, Uh like when the band's like syncopated rhythm. It's like a bad take in Pro Tools. Like, oh, they're playing a little out of time, and then you you play the one that's like perfectly in time, like everything just sounds better. Yep. That's exactly what it sounded like. Interesting. So, and it's not that it's like good or bad or, well, I got to be careful what I'm saying there, I guess. It's, it's different enough that we should all be aware of what's happening 100%. That's interesting. And I think you can make the argument that, it is better when everything's in the original time that the band played in. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I mean, especially if they're playing in time, right? <laughs> but right, right. I, I think we, we get so accustomed to hearing this in a big PA that we don't really notice that it's happening in the first place. And right. so it's really for you to be able to do this isolated test on in-ears or in a near-field scenario that you really hear it more pronounced. But I think with with the prevalence and the importance of broadcast mixes and all that stuff, you know, it's going to be even more and more important. Yeah, and here's the other thing. Like, like you just said, I don't have a PA in here or a live band on stage. So then add that to this, and it's another whole can of worms. So at Bayside... The drum kit is not very far behind the PA, okay? Yeah. So I thought we were timing the PA to the drum kit already because at front of house is like 55 feet away. I can hear that drum kit. Right. So we wanted to try and have everything arrive at the same time. But I didn't realize I was putting another 15 milliseconds of latency on the console. I've been hearing that drum kit before I've been hearing the PA. Right. Just acoustically. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So, and then think about monitors. Like, and your lead singer is going, "Man, I can like hear a little bit of latency there." And you're like, "Really? That's strange." Well, you got auto tune, H verb, and ten and a half milliseconds of throughput on your console going to uh, wireless in ears, which also have some delay in them. Right. That's that's really messing the band up, especially like a drummer. Like they got to be able to hear. Like when they hear that click and they hear hear them hit the snare. They need to know that they're playing in time. Like I, 
I'm, I texted somebody this this week. I think it was you and Robert. I think I'm okay saying that monitors shouldn't use any external hardware if it's going to put delay back on the inputs to the band. Like it could mess the performance up enough that I'm not sure it's worth it. It's really, really interesting. Well, you know, Robert, I love Robert's responses in our little text thread because, um, I told you so you idiots. No, well, that one. <laughs> not that one, but he didn't say, but that. the other one basically just saying, I'm going to be that guy here because I've been saying this for quite a few years. He has been. most manufacturers have been kind of sidestepping this as a problem because they're, they're not 100% in agreement on the best way to tell people how to figure it out. Right. Because there are so many variables. Right. I mean, I think that's the biggest problem is, you know, the actual internal to the console, okay, we can get close in terms of just publishing how much delay there is between channel paths and buses. But then when you go out and back in, yep. that's that's leaving a lot into users' hands that can be pretty um, I don't say dangerous, but can have negative effects yep so i have a question yeah have you ever done anything to delay your drum inputs to the overheads no and i actually heard robert again talk about this and i think i agree with him i, I i'll test this to find out the sound that you get from the overheads being away from I think is desirable that's, for me. It's part of the I sound. Want it to sound. Yeah. It's part of the sound. Is it actually being away? You're, you're basically creating a space in between and miking that space. But yeah, some people do delay to it. One interesting thing, if you think about this, uh, this will be visual for you and I, but I'll, listeners will maybe better figure this out. If you think about the overhead placement on a drum kit. So if you imagine you're staring down the top of a drum kit and you can see the overheads on top of the drums. Where is the snare drum in relation to those? It's more on the left side. Right. Right? Right. Okay. Where is the snare drum panned in your mix? Center. Right. So because of that, if your overheads are loud, you're also doing something to the phase relationship of the snare to the overheads. So to get, you're, you're shifting the center image of the snare drum. Mm -hmm. That's what's happening. Right. So to get that right, you should actually move the overheads so that the snare drum is centered over, is centered between the overheads. So that when you pan those left and right, the snare is still center image in the overheads also. So Robert built this little snare drum with a speaker inside of it. And he's sending pink noise out of that and checking the phase between that speaker and the overheads. So that he's not getting a 200 hertz cancellation in the center image of the snare drum. Wow, it's awesome. It is awesome. It's it's a lot to think about, and as we, it is, it, you know, but it is important, right? The math doesn't lie. So I think no. the the lesson here is the more we can get the math right, or at least think about what is actually happening, it's going to be yeah. it's going to be a benefit. So all that to say. So Yamaha, Avid, and Allen & Heath, I think are the only consoles that do 
uh, input delay compensation. Isn't that crazy to think about? <laughs> well, Waves so, Waves has it in the LV1. Um, that's true because it's everything's inside. But it's all. But but even then, you can you can create delay groups or you can have right. You, there's two settings. You can have the entire mixer aligned, or you can um, use delay groups. And I'm just looking actually at the manual right now, and there's only um, there's only four pages on how to get that alignment happening in the manual. So obviously only four. Yeah. So obviously Well, that's better than most. Yeah, I it's better took than a zero. deep dive in some well, some console manufacturers don't have any information about right. it. So I was a little tongue in cheek when I said only because yeah. they actually do dedicate four pages of the manual to how to set up proper bussing and proper alignment Good. so that you can get it right. So take that back. LV1, Allen and Heath. Waves Yamaha. Uh, Digico doesn't have any delay compensation anywhere through the console. So if you're on a Digico and you're doing multiple processing at different points and sending stuff different places, you need to check the phase alignment of all that stuff and think about, you know, having flex channels split up to to get it to do. The, I don't know how you would do it in Digico. I'm not that familiar, but you should be aware of it. Yeah, um, I'm sure. So I'm sure Kyle's going to gonna say, comment because we'll he will we'll, he can tell yeah, us how he can to tell do us it. how to do it. Uh, it's not a dig on Digico. It's just you need to be aware of the tools you're using, what they're capable totally. of. Um, so what I think I'm going to do, maybe, is every input on the PM7. I, how do I say this? I don't think I'm going to use plugins. That's what I'm saying. I think I'm going to leave everything in the console. And you mean outboard if we plugins. Need to use, right. I'm not going to use. You'll still use internal inserts. Yes, I'm going to use internal inserts for sure. I'm not going to use Super Rack to process anything other than maybe Auto Tune. If depends on how much rehearsal time. I was talking to one of our worship leaders, like, "Hey, what do you think about not using Auto Tune?" And you know, he said, "Depends on how much rehearsal we get," which I understand that. So, but doing it on a vocal, it's not that big a deal because it would be the same thing as in just moving them further downstage away from the drums. Right, right. You know what I mean? Because they're not producing transients like a snare drum. I mean, it's not. No, no. Yeah, I, I think that's fine. It's like if if a vocal is a little bit delayed, they're just laid back. It's not that big a deal. Yeah, it's fine. Right. Um, I may use uh, reverbs and delays. Not a big deal. You know, I already have 100 milliseconds of pre-delay on my plate verb. That's right. So what's <laughs> what's 10 more? Or not 10 more. It's probably five more, four more. So there's all that. I did find, I put this on Instagram last night, uh, the new update of the Rivage has an Eventide reverb in I, it. I saw that. It's freaking crazy, man. Well, even it's on Instagram far, over your phone mic, those yeah. just simple presets that are in there sounded awesome. It's unbelievable. I have... N- look everybody out there is like lee the yamaha fanboy kind of true i also love avid um that's by far the best sounding reverb i've heard in a console period i'll go that far that's great it's just so different you know how most reverbs and consoles are like yeah it's reverb yeah no these have that like extra thing they don't sound super metallic and they don't sound like the tails aren't zippery at the end they're freaking awesome. Yeah. But all the presets, you know, it's Ciccarelli, Dave Pensato, it's 
Massenberg's on there. It's like, so these guys, they also know what's up. But even when you just turn it on, the factory default, and start sliding stuff around, it all sounds really, really good. I'm really impressed that they did that. That's very cool. Yeah, so a couple more days here in the garage, Thanksgiving break, and then I'll have this in front of a, a live band next week to do more testing. Can't wait to hear more about it. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, today's interview is kind of fun. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's uh it's with two new guys to our tribe, Brian Hernandez from Gwinnett Church, which is a North Point church in the Atlanta area. Huge church. Yep. Awesome. And Jeremy Bagwell, who is formerly from a North Point campus, but now oversees worship and production for Ross video. Yes. So we are super thrilled that manufacturers are recognizing church as a vertical in their market space. It's weird to even say that, but th that's what they're doing. Yep. So um, anytime we see that with manufacturers, we're like, okay, let's let's bring them in now that they see how awesome we all are. Yeah. So we're going to have a great conversation with them. But the other thing we're going to do is partner with Ross on creating some content for MXU Now, which I am super excited about because, you know, guys reach out to us all the time. When are you going to have more video stuff? When are you going to, Yep. you know, ramp up the content for non-audio content. So we hear you, we're into it, we're doing it. Early next year, we're, we're going to have some more stuff dedicated to you guys who are non-audio focused. So let's get right to our conversation. Hey everybody, we're excited to be focused on video during this episode. And so in order to do that, we've got Jeremy Bagwell and Brian Hernandez here with us today. Um, Jeremy and Brian were both people that I knew from my days at North Point. Um, Jeremy was the video director at the Alpharetta campus, and Brian is the video director at the Gwinnett Church. Um, but Jeremy is now the worship production house of something video coordinator guy for Ross. And so he's going to tell us more about that. But guys, we're so glad you're here. And thank you so much for being a part of the MXU podcast and other things that MXU is doing. What a title. That's right. That's right. I, I kind of like to think about it more as worship production. Uh, house worship tends to have a little weird, you know, sound to it, I guess, inside, you know, our industry. So we call it worship production, or at least that's what I'm going to call it. And we're thus we're going to call that at, at Ross worship production, because uh, that's what we do. But, you know, house worship, worship production, church production, it's all the same. So. Well, here's what I think is great, is that a large technology manufacturer is recognizing the worship production space or house of worship or bedroom of worship or shed <laughs> shed of worship that's all i kept thinking about when you guys were talking about house of worship all these other weird names you could call it yep <laughs> yeah but back to my point uh i think yamaha was one of the first ones and dmb now has asher who's international, he's looking after a house of worship, sorry, worship production globally. Yeah. And, and now you, who else? Like, I don't know many others. There's not a whole lot. Um, Lavo may, I can't remember if Tony is general. I don't or think not. so. Okay. Yeah. It's not, anyway, a, it's there's not, not many, there's not yeah. many, but the ones that have started are the ones that I feel like are more influential in the space too. So that's really cool. 
Yeah. So I got a question for the Atlanta boys. I feel, you know, outnumbered here, three to one. I need some like embarrassing story about Jeff. Oh. Or like something funny. Like when you think like I don't oh, know. I was on a show with Jeff once and he did this. I don't remember. I just remember producing, which then I've at North Point when you produce, you're sitting right next to the front of house guy. And I think Jeff and I did a night of worship or a Good Friday or so. I can't remember what it was, but let's just say it wasn't one of those um, events that go swimmingly well. You know, I think. <laughs> oh, that would have been Good Good Friday, I'm sure. Yeah. And it was like, I mean, it's one of those things we've been rehearsing for hours. And I look over at him, and he gives me. It's one of those moments where you just connect and you're like, sweats billowing down your face. Yeah. And you're just like, I'm ready to be done. And we got a whole nother service to go. You know, it's just like, gosh, let's do this. And anyway, it was one of those moments. It's not embarrassing, but I just remember, I'll never forget like Jeff and I just seeing each other and it's like, yep, that was something. Yeah. But we got through it. We did. It was great. Yes. That's awesome. And Jeremy, you and Brian have a background too. How do you guys know each other? Yeah. Brian, you want to, you want to? You can go. Yeah. So we both uh, were on production staff at 12 Stone Church. And um, Jeremy, I was over um, lighting at the time. And Jeremy, uh, when he joined the team, joined as uh, production director over uh, our Hamilton Mill campus. And then Jeremy somehow moved to Florida for like a week and then came back and then became my <laughs> boss after that. Um, I don't know how that happened, but... He left Dude, Florida then... has superpowers. Florida, <laughs> there's something weird about Florida. Have you guys yes. seen these things like people reading headlines from Florida, like the craziest headlines ever? They're all from Florida. They are. So yeah. this could yes. be one. It could be tech director at church moves to Florida for a week, comes back as everyone's boss. Yep. Literally. That would be that, that would be appropriate. Exactly it did it yep. did happen and it was one of those <laughs> moments. And then yeah. So but it was good. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. So yeah. So uh then we kind of had a boss subordinate relationship, but it was, it didn't feel that way a lot of times, but, um, but yeah, so it was, it was great. And then he made the choice to depart and, uh, work over at North point. And then I ended up doing the same, maybe like a couple years, I guess, after that by joining Gwinnett church, um, last spring. So kind of been together along the ways yeah. a, a good little while here now. Brian, I will, I will say this about Brian. He is like uh, a awesome mixture of engineer and uh, creative. So like he was a lighting designer before he was a video guy. And so it's really great when he video directs, he like knows exactly what lighting needs to be and where. And so we even roped him into at North Point to uh, be our lighting director for our drive conference last year. And I was video directing. And he would come over intercom and say, hey, this is what's happening. You need to take a shot of this because there's lights there. So it was really <laughs> helpful to have like an AD as my lighting director. So anyway, yeah. It is helpful. That's awesome. And that's a really rare thing. You know, someone who's wired both ways. I'm a little bit like that, but it's like super techie stuff kind of drives me crazy. So Brian, how did you get started in this? And how did you know you loved creative and tech? Yeah, I think it started with um, first having the opportunity to do lighting. So I started lighting at Twelstone with their college ministry. So 
Um, the college ministry outroom outgrew their smaller room and moved into the main auditorium. And so I had the opportunity to figure out lighting with a college crowd that, you know, does not give, I guess. So they're like, have at it and do whatever, do whatever, learn whatever. <laughs> and then with that, um, I guess some of the leaders there started seeing, um, you know, more potential in me and started teaching me more of the technical side. And um, I think what I've come to realize is the uh, technical side is also creative in its own way. And so um, although it may not be like art creative, um, when you are, you know, in a church value, designing a system to where you can get the most out of it with, you know, minimal resources. I think there's a lot of creativity in that. Um, and so they both really interest me. And so I eventually stopped doing lighting and kind of transitioned more into video, um, which I think video holds a lot more of the technical and creative within one, a little more so that I would say than, than lighting does. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think they're both, the engineering side is creative as well, uh, just in a different way. And they both kind of interest me. Uh, I can't go deep into, you know, IP addresses and stuff. Like I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, yeah, me <laughs> that far technical, but, but uh, I do enjoy a good, you know, uh, router into a DA into a this and that. And well, that's, that's why we have system techs. That's why we have, people who love engineering right. to be able to handle all that stuff so we don't get it wrong. Right. Okay, that, that's something we can talk about. Here's a trend I'm seeing, okay? And maybe this will get us into some other stuff here. Lots of churches are upgrading video and not just small upgrades, right? Like they're doing these massive upgrades like, oh, we now do legit video production. Like before they may have had a couple cameras and a 24 input switcher something small i'm just making words up is that right <laughs> is yeah, that a thing right. yeah but now but what i'm saying is now there's systems being built for churches that require additional staff that's a really unique role in it's an engineer it's a technical systems engineer role are you guys seeing that too yeah. it's definitely something i'm seeing i think jeremy's a good example of like churches so there's a small church that obviously during COVID had to start, um, I guess, beefing up their video system. And Jeremy jumped in to help them with that. But then Jeremy was not always available. So then they're seeing how there's a gap between what they have now and then a person who understands it. So Jeremy, you can probably speak more into that situation. I don't know if that's what you were thinking of. but Yeah, I think the complexity uh is definitely ramping up and i think having an engineer type um has become more and more important i think uh the dual role so i think here's what's how i phrase it is like hey you got to be really good at people with people um because church is full of people and volunteers drive a lot of what we do and then also but you need to be really really technical and i think um as we learn how to deal with church that it has a high technology value we're learning like, oh, we can't find the people person and the technical person in the same body. So now it's like, while we could when the, not every church was doing like high technology, now every church is doing high technology and it's just a volume problem. Like there's not enough people, right? In that way, wired that way to be that. So it's like, okay, we need um, 
somebody that's really great with people and can lead them. And we have, need somebody that's really great and just making sure our systems work and make sure we're uh, doing things in the right way. So I think that really is the trend. Just there's a greater volume of churches doing it the same way with high technology. And so therefore, there's just not enough of us out there, to be honest. I think another aspect, too, is that the video team tends to be the largest in a production team. Yes. Because you've got volunteer camera ops, you've got volunteer graphics operators. And, you know, whereas the audio person mixing, it can be more of a sort of flying solo a little bit as as maybe a, a, an industry expert or a director level. Whereas if you've got six or seven cameras and graphics and lyrics and, 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 your video team is going to be full of volunteers. So all the more reason to have a great people person who can lead the charge on developing them. But like you say, as the systems get more complicated, you've got to have somebody who can engineer all that and make sure it works. Because the worst thing is for an, a volunteer to step into a Sunday morning or into a rehearsal and something not work and nobody knows how to check yeah. the signal flow and make sure everything's right. I think the main thing will be to help uh, <clears throat> like church leaders see the value in having the engineering person. Uh, I think a lot of times it's like assume that, you know, production, so you can do it. You can do it all. But I would just hope that um, like what Jeremy's saying, it is two separate people. Ideally it would be one, but even then it's hard. Like you say, on a Sunday, you're managing lots of people, volunteers, and then there's fires sometimes to put out that engineering can engineer can take on. So, um, yeah, I would just urge, I would urge like that to be obviously a, a salary of an added person needs to be considered, but, um, just take, take other things, those other things into consideration as far as seeing the value in having an engineer on your team. Yeah. I mean, a few years ago, if you were talking about like a church that's a growing church that's just started developing a tech team, they've got a tech director on staff, right? And they're going to hire the second person. A lot of times it would be, well, now we have a full-time audio guy, or now we're going to add a full-time lighting or that those next anchor positions. I could see this changing to, oh, we need a technical systems engineer now. We actually have contractors or volunteers in place in these other areas, but like we just hired one, for example, and he's responsible for all the video engineering. And then with lighting, everything's on networks and it's going building to building and there's media servers and LED walls and there's the backups. And now with audio, it's Dante all over campus. There's a whole infrastructure for that, that like I'm a pretty good audio guy. I could not go troubleshoot right now if like crap hit the fan with audio because it's so complex yeah. so this one guy oversees all the technical for the the whole thing now we're a bit of an anomaly you know most large churches the north points and baysides that's that is the exception but i could see it where a smaller church thousand people they're just killing it with production they have a tech director who's built great teams and then his next hire may need to be more of a systems type person instead of you know, anchor audio, video, or lighting, just because the nature of technology is just outpacing our ability to develop people. Like it's gotten so fast. Yeah. I do remember back when North Point added the TD role as a specific position for Sunday morning. And it was like, there was just a ceiling that got lifted for everybody because the people who were sitting at each 
position operating and, you know, making sure the service happened, following the cue sheet, you know, making sure it was executed well, didn't have to worry that there wasn't somebody in the background to, to basically manage if something went wrong. So it was just a, such a relief for all of us who were actually operators to know that there was somebody who would walk by occasionally and check in, Hey, you guys doing okay? You know, I remember, you know, whether it was you or Seth or any of those other guys who would fill that TD role, it was like, Hey, are you mixing today? Are you running lights today? No, 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 I'm, I'm TD. I'm on the radio if you need me. And it was just this sense of, Oh man, that's so nice to have somebody else just support what we're doing. Yep. I would, I would say what really uh, helped me learn and value that is doing stuff outside the church world, doing shows and productions outside of like a church base is that being able to have this engineer in charge and basically it was like, oh, there's an EIC button on Incom. I can just say, hey, this is what I need. And they're like, yeah, happy to hear, happy to be here, happy to support you, like sure enough and, and do whatever. So I remember when I first got started, like at the small church 15 years ago, I actually ran a Yamaha audio console. Uh, and I would remember like putting faders up and then running back to the back booth to fix something else and just hope nothing fed back, <laughs> you know, while I'm fixing yep. and light, uh, mm-hmm. putting out another fire. So yeah, it's really helpful to have somebody just, uh, floating and technical to make crap happen. I was going to shift gears here. Let's go to the people side. Okay. So you said a minute ago, somebody did that the video team is the largest team in the production and worship area. There's there's usually more people on video than sometimes there even is on stage playing instruments, right? So if you were starting a video team from scratch, no volunteers, and you had six months to build the most kick-A video team, what's the first three things you would do? Um. All right, so Brian can interject. I can't, I think the... This will be interesting to see what I come up with off the top of my head. So I appreciate you asking questions I'm not prepared for. So um, <laughs> I think the first thing I would do is um, really uh, meet people um, and really help them understand at the end of the day that what we do is to serve the greater good of church. And being part of the video team is not to serve um, our creativity, but it's to serve um, the creative of what we're doing and accomplishing. So the, the big picture vision stuff, and then dive into, okay, here's how, here's how the technical components of each thing works. Um, is that kind of what you're asking? Is that what you're asking? I think so. Yeah. Okay. I mean, like, you see some churches with killer video teams, killer camera ops. They all know what they're doing. they got volunteers even switching. And then you see some churches that are just struggling, but they got just as many people. Yeah. So like what's separating the men from the boys there? Yeah. I think it's hands-on training and well, no, let me back up. I think what no one really likes to talk about is the video director position, the person actually calling, um, the camera shots. It is one of the most important things because like you put Brian in a seat calling cameras and I've never had experience actually could be a pretty good camera op with no experience while Brian's directing. Cause Brian's really great at, at, um, Hey, 
do this instead of that, or instead of that shot, grab this shot. And it's very clear in what they want. Um, the hardest part is when you put video directors calling cameras and they're calling stuff, but they're not really clear. And you have these camera ops that are scrambling because they can't necessarily find what the video director's asking for. So it's really hard to talk about that because it's, to be honest, it's like personality-based and communication-based. So being able to say, no, do this instead of that, or instead of like, for instance, sorry, one more tangent. Somebody says, hey, everyone's on the lead singer. I need, I need somebody off the lead singer. Well, that's really poor communication because at the end of the day, and then you're going to have yeah. every camera op go to somebody else. So instead you say, camera three, you need on this. Camera four, you need to do this, right? And so that makes all the difference in the world. And that really makes a difference between like having a camera op that's like once a month who actually just learns over and over for the first time every month because they're once a month. Um, it makes a difference in my opinion. I don't know what you think, Brian. Yeah, it's, <clears throat> it's the balance between, it is it is balance. The director, I think, holds a lot of, I would say most of the end product, just like, I, I guess with mixing as well as a balance of like, what's coming from the stage and then what you put out. So I think um, with volunteer camera ops, you, you have to give the vision of what you're looking for first. Um, and that hopefully comes through training beforehand. But if not, it comes through communication in the moment. So, um, so a lot of times when there is something, I'm not getting something from the stage or from the camera ops that I would want. You either have to communicate what you do want. And if it's not happening, you have to pivot in the moment and figure out how to get what you do want, either by not using that shot anymore, or, you know, it's just, it's just a lot of like, in the moment decisions that are happening constantly. Uh, but I do think what separates, I think what you see online and what separates them is the director themselves and their vision of how they see um, video. So um, that's why I get a lot of different flavors depending on what, what you're watching. Um, but then there's some like general consistencies when you see like video being done well as well. So how about camera training? Like when you talk about giving clear communication, are you showing in a camera training, like, Hey, here's some examples of the shots we're looking for, you know, concert videos and things like that. And then do you get even more specific? Like, I feel like I'm seeing, um, with churches, like a camera on the drummer, you know, they're like off to the side of the drum kit is a video director actually telling them, Hey, make the number seven with your camera just over and over. Just go back and forth to number seven. Like I, I feel like that's what it is. Am I crazy? That's interesting. I might try saying make the letter, make this number. Anyway, uh, so with training, with training, I the I've done a few trainings. They they vary in style because I don't think anyone really has truly mastered camera training because it's just so. It's always evolving. It's always that's good to know harder than what you what you imagine on paper. And the cameras are always changing. The cameras are always changing. People are always changing. Styles always changing. And so, um, but I've done an in depth camera training where like I ended up. It was a combination of finding shots that I do like, or like one day I just sat and I so recorded myself doing things I would want to see, um, and then in the training I would play those back. Um, 
to the camera ops. Um, and that, that went from everything from style to just like um, terminology. So like mid thigh, a two shot, those kinds of kinds of things and giving a visual to go with it. Um, the hard part with training, I think that's the bet the easier way of training is by through visual examples because coordinating you either have to have a band on stage in order for you know the camera ops to um have some uh, have talent to shoot which adds a whole other level of complexity you have to coordinate a whole band they have to actually play they have to not get bored and walk away halfway through you know so uh you just give if you can have examples to show without the band being there and then that could when you do have a band in expedite the process of like hey what you saw now you have talent for 20 minutes before they're done rehearsing and then you can um kind of speed up that process for training so they have a visual plus the real the real thing um but that's that's been the more most successful way i've trained um versus like first time is them with a band and talent on stage. And I'm like trying to coordinate. You're now coordinating the band and the volunteers and there's one of you and there's a lot of them. So um, yeah, I, I think a sit down, watch classroom style for the first video training is probably the best in my, my opinion. Brian and I have talked a lot about um, training. <laughs> so we've been trying to crack that nut. I think everybody uh, has an idea about it. Um, but yeah, Brian's probably one of the most passionate when it comes to training. Well, that's good to know that there's no, like, here's how you do this. You know what we should do, Jeremy? We should team up with Ross and shoot a bunch of training videos for MXU now. <laughs> that sounds like a great idea. Spoiler alert. Well, I feel like maybe we need training videos on training. Like here's how to train camera operators. Wow. Yes. Yeah. That's actually an idea. I think one of the the hardest parts is trying to figure out like how do you like do a tight follow uh, on a speaker or communicator or pastor, um, and how do you train somebody to do that and get that experience without like it actually happening? So, and then there's just all this coordination to put people in the room, and yeah, it's it's not for the faint at heart. Yeah, that's a huge point. I think you know something that has really helped audio engineers over the last five, seven, 10 years is virtual sound check. But there's not necessarily a virtual sound check option for camera ops to be able to come in and practice. And so oh, we've we've tried. We've we ran our center screen down and I put like a program cut on this big giant center screen and had my camera ops like shoot it as if it was real. It just was well, not the same because you can't track focus yeah. back and forth. Um yeah. I've tried a lot of interesting. those. Interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. That's an interesting idea. <laughs> I know. It, it didn't work very well. <laughs> yeah, even if you're switching, it doesn't work either to yeah. play 12 videos out of a media server back in. Like, it doesn't really... It's not the same. No, it's not. Right. Wow. I don't envy you guys. Well, and that's the thing. It's so, it's so tough, especially like, you know, Brian, you mentioned the once a month person who's an accountant during the week, and they serve once a month on the on the team, they're not getting any reps. They're not like, how do, how do they get better? Because there's no, there's no real time to practice. I know, you know, you can do a monthly training or you do an evening once a quarter where you feed everybody and give them some best practices. But it's uh, like you say, it's a tough nut to crack. Maybe we do need to 
let MXU now help us figure it out. We can certainly try. So, Jeremy, what are you seeing churches out there? Like, what's next? What are the trends? What do you see churches doing? What do you think they'll be doing different in the next year or two years? Uh, I think one of the trends that is here to stay is broadcast. You know, I see, as Brian referenced, uh, a small church that I actually grew up at and uh, really cut my teeth in production at. Um, they didn't do video stuff at all pre-COVID. And then all of a sudden they became a video church and now they're starting to meet back in person, but they're continuing to stream and like they now have cameras and a switcher. Um, and now obviously have a, a broadcast audio mix and it's, it really is like their production system quadrupled overnight and they're going to continue to do that. They don't do iMag in the room. So they're, you know, cause their room's small. So they're going to run lyrics full screen to the room and then, you know, have their broadcast video cut go to Facebook live. Um, but that's going to be to stay for a little while longer, probably maybe for the rest of their time. Um, and I think content, people are learning content's king. So like at the end of the day, that pastor's content, that worship song, like that can get sliced up and posted during the week and shared. And, um, you know, Sunday as like the delivery medium for this content is um, going away a little bit. Who cares what you believe philosophically or theologically about that? Uh, That's just true. Um, It's going to happen whether you like it or not. It's going to be people are going to access our church content, you know. uh, Yeah, we've called that uh, pillar content. So the weekend, anything long form, we call pillar content. And then you take that and you slice that down and it, you know, you get your two minute quotes, you get your, your worship chorus. We've even started recording the band Devo beforehand. Like that's some content now that's going out. Like here's what the worship leaders were thinking when they were picking this set list for you guys this weekend. And then that gets reposted. So that's really good. There are just people like documenting everything we do. And then as soon as the weekend's over, all those assets get taken over to the comms team and then they have a heyday with it. So yep. I th- think you're I think you're right. So I just think the way you design a production system now isn't like if I was designing it for scratch, I think it would be different or I have a different framework about it because it's like what we're doing is producing this 60 minute live event, but we're also producing like these five minute chunks of that are happening inside that. So it's like we need to ISO record some cameras because everything eventually will be post-edited, whether you are a 500-person church or a 10,000-person church, right? Right. Like, those things are now the same. If Then if you, then you kind of start backing that up, and then your staffing has to be structured to support that, too. Like, oh, we need an editor. We need a social media person or a way to, like, take this content and shape it up and ship it out. Um, so the production systems are different, and the way you go about thinking about programming is probably different too. So yeah, a lot is changing. It is a lot and it's fast. What do you think, um, like the churches that are on the bleeding edge already, what's next for them? Or do we know? I, I don't know if we, yeah. So like 4k is a thing that comes up all the time and 4k is fascinating because at the end of the day, all of this content we're using and creating in 4K is going to get compressed via the web. So what's fascinating to me is the 4K. I want to switch in 4K. I want to route in 4K. I want to 
um, capturing 4K. Now, I want to go to my screens in 4K. I just don't know if there's just so much involved in that. Anyway. Um, yeah, what happens, like two things. You're in the room, if your whole system's in 4 or 8K, for that matter, what happens when the youth pastor comes in and wants to put a, plug his laptop in? Right. Yeah. Like well, that's the kind of stuff that we spend our time on, really. It's, yeah. well, Tuesday night women's Bible study, they want a camera, but they also <laughs> want to play this DVD that someone brought. So yeah. what do you, like, come on. Yeah. I think if people really care about what the video looks like, uh, adding pixels via 4K is not necessarily the goal. I would say HDR. It, HDR looks incredible. Um, and I think HDR should be the focus. And then whether it's 1080 or 4K, um, either one. The, the problem is our consumer market drives a lot of our purchasing in the professional market because then every senior pastor walks into Best Buy and sees a 4K HDR TV. And it's like, I want 4K HDR. Well, reality is that's probably not the most wise choice in purchasing a 4K system. But HDR might not cost you any more. Um, but the problem is there is no 1080 HDR TVs. It's all 4K HDR. So, right. um, so it's just wild. And I try to have those conversations and make sure people understand like, okay, this is what you're buying. And are you really going to use it in that capacity? Um, is it future-proof really? I don't know. I, yeah. I should probably know. But at the end of the day, it's like compression is king, man. Everywhere we view stuff is going to be compressed. So right. those pixels go away. And even when it's not compressed, I have a theory. When you get a TV below like 40 inches, I mean, it all looks 1080 on a 40 inch TV. Come on. That's right. You mean to tell me that you can see the difference in a 4K and a really good 1080? Now, if you have a 100 inch TV on your wall, like, okay. Yeah, but what about my iPhone 12 mini that's 5G? Now, that's got all the Ks. <laughs> that needs all the Ks. Well, here's what I think's funny. Like when I got the new iPhone and it's 5G and they're like, "Do you want ultra wideband super duper laser beams?" I'm like, no. <laughs> but it's it's not so that I can get higher resolution video. Like the NFL app is promoting multi-camera streams. So instead of doing 8K to my phone, I think they're even seeing no, what could be cooler is multi-cameras. Like you get to pick which camera you want to watch. So, like, I'd be more interested in uh, some church experimenting on that. Like, during worship, you get to pick a camera. Like, do you want the wide feed or do you want a, a program cut? You know, that could be Because cool. content yep. is king, not yep. resolution is king. It's like giving right. more people more ways to watch in different ways is more interesting to me than how clear it looks. Yep. So. Can we, a pet peeve for me? Can we? Yeah. It's yeah. kind of relevant. Uh, I think people don't emphasize the importance of recording a multiviewer. Um, and I think for this exact reason is that a multiviewer is a great way for people to, you, you to show people, but it's also a great training tool. Um, but what I see is people designing systems and don't take, into consideration being able to record a multi-viewer each um, 
service because it's like it's the only way you actually see what your camera ops were doing and like oh we missed that shot we missed that lead singer because we didn't have anybody shooting it well you're going to miss that moment um but you watch it back and realize oh that's the way i can get better anyway i think it's so one it can be a different way to view the content publicly if that works but two it's yeah it's a often forgotten about uh resource in our production system as a review. No, I wish more churches were doing that. Like uh, Zach at Elevation will turn on their YouTube page and yep. stream their multicam with Calm. That's such a good learning tool. Yep. And it's and Gr- Calm. Great idea. Yes. Recording Calm is a must because it's the Brian Brian will say the same thing. It's like the magic weapon in like figuring out like what is our problem in video directing and our video system like why are we getting stuck where we're getting stuck? Well, then you start hearing like your director or your camera ops talk on comm and you're like, oh, that's what happened. You know, mm-hmm. oh, that's where we, we keep we keep getting stuck right there. So very important. So speaking of that, let's get super practical. So um, can you guys talk through your system and workflow for how you did camera review between services? Because I know there are some things that happen at the nine o'clock that it's like, okay, guys, we need to regroup and make sure this doesn't happen at the 11. So backstage in the control room, what does that process look like? So that if there's somebody listening going, okay, we're just getting into this and we're not Elevation or North Point or Passion, how can we get better? Like, what does that, yep. what does that game time thing look like for you guys? So, so for us at North Point, I'm not sure exactly how Brian does it um, at Gwinnett, but for us at North Point, we had two services, 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock service. And then after the nine o'clock service, we had this really simple, uh, almost old school TiVo um, that was basically on our local network. And we basically were a way to take SDIN, a little device, and then push it out to like RF channel. And then the TiVo is just set to record it. So the TiVo, and you can Google how to do all that technically. But so the TiVo record recorded every service. And so we were able to create a room with a TV and our video team went into this room after the service and we were literally able to use a TiVo because TiVo is so like consumer friendly, it's easy for our volunteers to like interact with it. So like, oh, hit that recording, go to that, go to that, you know, nine o'clock and watch. So we were able to, we sent the multiviewer to it, which is another reason why multiviewer recording is important. Sent the multiviewer to it, able to watch it. And then the director leads that discussion Oh, we missed that there. Oh, that was a great shot on four. I didn't take that shot on four. I, I should have, you know, like uh, being able to have those real-time uh, feedback things. So then, it, you know, because our music stuff was like 15 minutes max. So we had enough time between services to watch it and then also get back on track and 11 o'clock, make it awesome. So um, that was a real-time feedback tool that was really, really helpful. Um, and there's a lot of different technology ways to do it. We just chose a TiVo because at the time, I guess we built those systems like five years ago when TiVo was like a thing, a really raging yeah, thing. That's yeah. cool. So Brian, what do you, what do you guys do? Yeah. Over at Gwinnett, we do not have anything fancy like a TiVo or whatever, but, um, so we, we never, uh, rewatched nine in between services, but we would get together and just discuss things that. Um, either the camera ops felt or that I felt were could be better and could improve. So it was less um, te- technical as far as like pulling up a review of the last service 
but we would um, just discuss the things that I felt could have been better in between. And then sometimes it would be a discussion to where I would say, say something I thought could be better. And then they would communicate, Oh, well, this is why that was not possible. And I'd be like, okay, great. Now I know. And so it was more, more discussion based than it was watch, watch and review, um, which could be helpful for those who don't have resources to play something back. I wouldn't keep that from still meeting. I think the important part is the fact of meeting together post, um, post service and just kind of reviewing what you did and then going back out again. For and the that, next service. that helps reinforce the people part too, I think. But I would say for me, pouring into volunteers on Sundays, make sure you set the tone of like, Hey, Sunday's like a high pressure environment. I'm not going to have a ton of time to be able to tell you good job. Here's what you then here, here's where you get better. And then good job again. And do that. Like sandwich <laughs> compliment sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I set the tone with our team is like, Hey, Sunday is really hard and Sunday um, is going to be challenging. It's going to be rewarding and like set the tone that way. And then what it does is allow me to be really, really um, diligent in giving affirmation during the service. So when they do receive a lot of great feedback, they understand like, oh, I did that really well. This is usually not a good time, like usually not an environment for great feedback. But then when we do, it, it just helps it even better. So setting the right tone and making sure everybody understands like, hey, it's not personal. And you know what? It's not about your creativity. It's just about what we do right now on Sunday is like we have low t- low margin of time. Um, so let's kind of get the things right and uh, and we'll have fun doing it. Um, but anyway, just creating this that fun environment with the right expectations. Um, yeah. That's very cool. So before we let you guys go, Jeremy, I've got to hear from you on, you know, I, I noticed that you're wearing a Ross hat. So with your Ross hat on, why don't you tell us what's new with you guys in the worship production space? Because I know you had a big announcement last week that you want everybody to be aware of. Yep. So I'm really excited about about being at Ross. Um, and I love the investment that Ross is making into our worship production community. Um, we have so many users. Uh, it's kind of uh, mind-blowing when you think about it, who uses our routing and switching platforms. Um, but a couple of things related directly to our community is we have a control software called Dashboard. And so Dashboard uh, is an open software that Ross develops, and it controls Ross products, but also re- um, controls uh, third-party devices. And I didn't really understand the power until I got to Ross. And I was like, man, if our community understood what Dashboard could do, uh, it's really a a game changer. So um, we released uh, 14 video tutorials on how to build um, what we're calling the Worship Production Dashboard panel. So it's it's legit like graphical panel with buttons that you can click and control things, um, control a switcher, control a robotic camera, control recording on and off and things like that. It's basically um, what I would have created to like really help manage um, our services at North Point um, from a technical perspective. Um, and so we're giving you the tutorials on how to build it yourself. So we're not going to launch this thing. We're not giving it away to you because the Technical backend is really complicated with every other device that you have in your production system that's not Ross gear, but you can build it on your own um, and learn how to build it. So I really believe that at the end of the day, Dashboard is a game changer because our community 
loves, loves uh, to tinker and make things better and make things better without costing anything. And dashboard is free. And you're like, oh, cool. I can hook in these, my lighting. You know, your lighting system could be hooked into dashboard and then you just click one button and it changes uh, what's on your screens and it changes your lighting down to a certain thing or triggers all kinds of different ways. It, it's really amazing, but uh, you just have to learn it and learn dashboard. So we're committed to giving everybody the tools to learn how to make their own dashboard control stuff. So that's what we, that's what you're referencing, Jeff, uh, as far as what we're announcing and kind of really our investment into that world is building this community around dashboard, not just from a newsroom control standpoint, but from really from here's your church market. This is what you guys do. This is what we do. And you know what? We're going to come together and find the right products and solutions uh, to serve our market, not just a piece of technology that used, was used for newsroom into the church. So yeah, hope that answered your question. It did. That's awesome. So what's the easiest way to find it and find out about it? Yeah, just go to uh, rossvideo.com and you can click on applications and you see worship production right there. On the worship production page, you'll see all the tutorials on the very bottom and ways to get started with Dashboard. Um, we also have a brand new switcher panel that um, is really game changer. It's called Touch Drive Panel. Um, it is amazing. It's basically replacing our Carbonite um, switcher surface panel. You know, it's kind of weird these days where surface panel everybody calls them different things but anyway it's yeah. like the buttons uh that you press well this panel is physical buttons everything you'd want in a normal uh switcher panel but also all of the mnemonics are touchscreen um mnemonics um and it, it's we've been developing for um, a long time just released it last month and they're actually shipping now and they're beautiful so um touch drive is its name and you can find it on rossvideo.com very cool and it's the same price as our previous panels. So they're <laughs> way better and the same price. I know That's every, good. everybody's going to want to ask that anyway. So I figured I'd throw that in. There. Love it. I was a huge fan of the Carbonite because of what it did for and what it cost. Yep. And you didn't have to go buy a 250 by 250 router that cost more than a switcher to get it. It was like, hey, now you can have all of this for like not a gajillion dollars. Right. I mean, it's still expensive. It's not, it's not. It's not some Chinese crap, but but it's really good. <laughs> That's and right. It's affordable. I'm glad you said it, not me. Hey, you're welcome. <laughs> That's right. I, I say things that people think. That's right. <laughs> those can, right. Those Canadians know what they're doing. Yeah. That's right. All right, fellas. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, that was great getting to hear from both of those guys. Again, we said it a few times already, but... We're stoked. Ross Video, MXU. We're going to make a baby, and it's going to be called Awesome Videos <laughs> Delivered to You. That's what happens. That is... I'm not sure that's how that works, Lee. It's not? No. I have a couple babies. I think that's how that works. Um, I bet Jenny would disagree. <laughs> probably. Probably would. Anyway, we're going to be making loads of content for video, so... You know, like they said in the podcast, like no church has gotten this right on how to train video teams, camera operators. Well, by gosh, we're going to take a stab at we're it. We're going to do it. We're going to, yeah, and we're going to teach you how to train. We're going to train you how to train. That's true, too. We kind of discovered that on accident in this one when I said we need videos on how to train. 
which of course we do. Yeah. Why haven't we thought of this before, Jeff? Um, we have 300 videos and we don't have a video on how to teach. Yeah, we're not very smart. No, we aren't. We should hang it up. Let's. This is the <laughs> final episode. <laughs> 48 as far as 48. We got. Well, we got 48. That's, you know, better than 41. Should we do something big for 50? I think we should. Or is 50 like, well, it's not 100. Like 100, you clearly we have to do something. If somebody's married 50 years, do you throw them a big party? Yes. Yeah. So I think we need a 50th episode celebration. Okay. Let's do that soon. Yeah. It'll probably be two episodes from now. <laughs> Let's make it like two and a half hours, just like Joe Rogan. This oh, thing. that's like, cool. Well, we need to be in the same room if that's going to happen. I, we should do that. We should get together and just have a big convo for our 50th. And we'll maybe we'll do like the phone a friend thing where you and I will be in the room together. And then we'll just start. We'll just start making calls. Yes, that's perfect. All right. We have a bunch of guests kind of lined up, like loosely penciled in that are going to be awesome. There's a bunch yes. of stuff coming. Like, yes. Uh, one of the head guys at Yamaha, he runs the R&D department who makes the consoles. He's coming on. Yep. I'm stoked to ask him super secret questions that he can't answer publicly. Yeah, I love it. Well. Awesome. Hope you have a great Thanksgiving. You too, man. I'm going to eat a lot, just so you know. I'm smoking a turkey on the Traeger. So I'm smoking a turkey breast on real wood thank you very much and the traeger is real wood i know i mean it's here's what this traeger is i made this comment on somebody's facebook page it's basically like the x32 of smokers <laughs> isn't it it's like just set it and forget it no it's a template it's a template it's a it's a pro tools template for your broadcast it's an app you've got you know that's that's the thing that i can't get over is that I don't have and I, I get it everybody sees it as a plus right you have the convenience of not having to babysit it not have to check the temperature and not have to stoke the flame and all that yeah but I like that I like yeah the, I, I like the analog I like building my own arrows exactly I like analog it's smoking it's similar yeah 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 you know how many times I've used that trigger app in the last year mm -mm. zero. Oh, that's funny well, good for you. Yeah, it just, it's a selling point. People are like, oh, look, it has an app. But after you figure out, like, really what to do, yeah. you don't really use the app. By the way, that video that's going around on social, the You Betcha oh. video with that guy yeah. doing the trigger thing, I mean, it's brilliant. Green egg, I'd rather I'd die. rather die. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. That's the video I commented on was that. It was on Brian Damaro's. Uh, Facebook page. Yeah. He tagged me yeah. in that video, and I said X32 for life. SM57s on everything. Yep, it's kind of like the same thing. Got to get those hashtags. I like. And it. then Todd Hartman is the stick burner purist well, he's, from Austin. He's the green egg guy. Yeah. So that's good. The world needs all kinds, Lee. That's that's really what we're saying. It does. All it the does need all kinds. All the dead animals that need to be cooked need all kinds i got a yeti beside me full of deer meat right now there you go so yeah we're smoking a turkey breast and frying a whole turkey and uh, it's going to be awesome so awesome well t uh whatever uh table wine you have send me the tasting notes. <laughs> i will definitely do it all right forget this floral stuff we're talking about eq
I know. I want to hear what a distressor sounds like on your white wine. Ooh. Now you got me thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. See you All right. Next have time. a good one. See you.